Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morena team, I hope you're having a great week and like me, you're probably counting down number of sleeps until Easter. Fantastic. Hey, uh, today on the podcast, I'm delighted to bring to you my conversation with my mate, Jamie Scott. Now, Jamie Scott is a guru really in all things ancestral health and he was kind of seminal in starting me down this path of looking at things through an evolutionary lens with regards to health and fitness and nutrition. So to have him on Wikipedia today and chat with him all about seasonality, light and dark and the impact of this on our health was just such a delight. For those of you who don't know, Jamie hails from the South Island of New Zealand and he trained in sciences of physical activity and health and human nutrition, both through the University of Otago. And he also studied a postgraduate in sports medicine and spent time working as a personal trainer, rehab assistant and as a nutrition consultant. He's worked in the past with a range of individuals and groups. And after leaving the fitness industry, Jamie became a health researcher, writer, and presenter for one of New Zealand's largest organizational health and wellbeing companies. Since then though, Jamie also co-founded the Ancestral Health Society of New Zealand, of which I am also a founding member of, and he then went out on his own and works now as a nutrition consultant and writer, author, and presenter for organizations as well as individuals and groups under his own company, P3 Athletica, and that's where you can find Jamie Scott. He's got a really deep interest in both human and environmental health, looking for leads and possible answers to many of our major health issues within that evolutionary biology and ancestral health framework. Outside of that, he enjoys great coffee, good company, bicycles of both types, and diving into the research. So you can see why we're mates. Today, Jamie and I, as I said, we take a deep dive into the impact that light and dark has on our health and get your notebooks out because I think that you'll really enjoy our conversation. And then I can give you some updated information on where to find more information on the topic area of which Jamie researched and helped with the writing of a book around this whole topic and where you can find Jamie. Enjoy this conversation with Jamie Scott. Perfect. And we're on. Jamie Scott, how are you? Very good, Mickey. Thanks for having me on. Mate, I am just stoked that you've got an hour out of your day to chat to me. And, um, you know, when I emailed you, I suggested a topic and you were like, nah, let's do one of these couple of things. And it really kind of highlighted to me that regardless of the probably the area of ancestral health that we dive into you're gonna be one of the go-tos and we've known each other for a number of years and I remember when I first kind of got into this paleo I, I say that with quote marks 
yeah, we can't call it that no. anymore. Um, and um, I didn't even really know what it was that I was supposed to be Googling about it. You know, it was such a new area, this whole looking at things from an evolutionary perspective. And so I, I Googled and in amongst the Mark Sissons, the Rob Wolfs, the Julianne Taylors, there was your name, Jaylee's, Jamie Scott. Oh, okay. um, that feels like another lifetime ago, doesn't it? I know, mate. And your blog, That Paleo Guy. So, look, can we just kick off by getting you to describe what was the catalyst for your interest, both, I suppose, personally, and of course that'll transition to professionally, into that whole ancestral health area? Well, far out. So we're going back to like, probably like mid-2000s, I think. So you and I kind of share a similar background in that we both have PE degrees. We both kind of came through that um, nutrition training at Otago in the, the 1990s. And I started out in practice in the early 2000s applying like the stuff that we were taught and it was all that kind of low fats public health guidelines and you know, whatever and I I kind of got maybe three four five years post university and I'm like stuff doesn't seem to work or not as, as well as kind of what you were hoping it would do or, or what you think it would and I was working in a gym at the time and a lot of the stuff that so like the bodybuilders were doing with their nutrition, like they were getting like amazing results. And so it kind of mm-hmm. like it wasn't that I necessarily looked at them and go, okay, well they know what they're they're doing. Although in hindsight, could kind of piece together a few bits and pieces now, but it created enough doubt and questions in my mind that's like maybe there's another way around this. And it just happened to be that like I was working with a few um, individual clients at the the time, and a couple of came, kind of came to me, and they were. Uh, they told me that they didn't tolerate carbohydrates particularly well and they wanted more of a lower carb type diet plan and they were cyclists and a couple I was also working with were having trouble with um, gluten and I didn't know a massive amount about uh, celiac disease and low gluten diet so in amongst all of this I'm like oh I need to dive into some literature and find an alternative Uh, and as a result of doing a search and I don't think like it was was Google even around at the time? I can't remember. Um, as a result of doing the a search, I found this book called uh, The Paleo Diet for Athletes. Mm. And so like, okay, well, that's interesting. And I, I knew a, a guy, and we probably knew the same guy, his name completely escapes me, who, who was studying low-carb, high-fat diets for cyclists through University of Otago. Dave Rollins? Dave Rollins, yes, that's mm. the name. Um, so like there was, there's a whole kind of, uh, convergence of different ideas that kind of came together at once and so like I, I got this book by Lauren Cordain and had a read of that and I'm like oh okay so eating in accordance with our evolutionary biology well that makes a lot of bloody sense to me and we didn't really cover much if any of that through university so and that triggered it and it was off like a robber's dog down into all sorts of weird rabbit holes in that point and then that led to you know the Mark Sissons and the Rob Wolfs and the Ancestral Health Society and paleo kind of being a thing and then not being a thing and ancestral health symposiums and yeah so and here we are so (laughs) yeah now Jamie can I ask like at the time with your own practices and your personal kind of diet and and you were as I understand it was at that time were you heavily into cyclists into cycling yourself like did you transition your own approach at that point yeah it did so um I ate rubbish in hindsight. Uh, and then as it turned out that I was 
uh, I, I've got celiac disease myself, which I didn't know about, which kind of explained mm. a lot of, lot of stuff, both in my, terms of my health and family health. But um, I was, I started out probably a, as a very average cross-country mountain biker very long time ago, and then ended up being a very average local road cyclist. But, you know, on any given day, I could probably go okay in my category. So, um, yeah, I, I started kind of looking at my own diet and messing around with that and took a few things out and adjusted my diet. And I was always that person, whether I was mountain biking or road cycling, who from the moment we set out, I basically had 90 minutes up my sleeve. Mm-hmm. And at about the 90 minute mark, I would just blow to smithereens and would be looking to pull into a cafe and go face first into like one of those head size muffins just to get me home and then would probably finish a loaf of bread when I get home like I just had no staying power past that kind of 90 minute mark uh and so as a result of you know kind of going down this kind of paleo pathway and and changing the diet and and the quality of the food and the the different uh, different types of fueling adding a bit more fat in and probably like taking the gluten and stuff out upping my protein which was a, a massive game changer suddenly i'm like holy shit now i can be that person who can go out and ride for three four five hours and like obviously take on a bit of fuel over that time but not just die and then be able to actually kind of get up and do it the next day so yeah it was, it was pretty transformational in terms of my ability to actually do stuff yeah, that's amazing. And I know that both you and I working with clients um, see that time and again, particularly in the athletic population. And then, of course, for people who are just active and not necessarily athletes, we see it just in their day-to-day energy levels Absolutely. as well, yeah. eh? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, we've had the discussion before that, you know, changing your diet is almost like the first step or the little gateway into... It's gateway drug. Yep. <laughs> it is. Into the, you know, into a much more broader area of lifestyle and kind of figuring out how to optimise, you know, living in our modern surroundings whilst taking into consideration that, you know, our evolutionary underpinnings, if you like. And, um, and this is being based on that premise that there's that mismatch which you so nicely kind of talk about in a number of things you write about between our genes and our environment. Can you unpack this, please, for people who might not be familiar with, you know, what is this mismatch? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in probably the most simplest terms, it's like we're we're the embodiment of tens of thousands of years and hundreds, if not thousands, of generations of, of evolution. So our genome that we have now is uh is kind of the the sum total of it kind of every everything and everyone that's kind of come before us including all of the environments that that genome has been exposed to uh for for better or for worse and you know and we need to be very careful that we we kind of we don't cast our eyes back to our ancestral past with kind of rose tinted glasses like Mm. but in a way having a genome that's been exposed to some kind of pretty hard gritty times kind of gives us a degree of resilience now that perhaps we don't test very very often in our modern modern uh existence and you know some people kind of frame it as maybe the last ten thousand years since an agricultural revolution uh and then we've got like industrial revolutions maybe i don't know the past 250 years or, or so whatever it happens to be and then we've got this very modern um computer-driven technology information type revolution going on 
there's been some minor adjustments, I guess, to that genome, but not massively, not on a wholesale basis, mm. to kind of cope with this very modern environment that we have, and we'll probably get into the details of what that, that environment is, versus what a genome expects or, or how it's tried to kind of analyse that environment. So it's expecting certain types of foods in certain combinations, it's expecting a certain amount of sleep, it's expecting a certain amount of physical activity, it's expecting that we live as very kind of social creatures, blah, 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 because that's been our largest part of our past. Mm. And yet here we are in the modern world where those food ratios and food types, the, the qualitative and quantitative aspects of our diet have shifted considerably versus the bulk of our, our history. Our sleep patterns have shifted, our socialization patterns have shifted. So that, like, there's this massive mismatch and, you know, maybe if we kind of lock the doors and pin everything down and sit here for the next 10,000 years, then the genome will adapt and will kind of catch up. Mm. But that doesn't seem to be the case. So, and, you know, too bad for you and I in the short term, we're not going to live for 10,000 years. So um, unless, we find, unless we find some way of basically approximating, and, that, and I think that's a better word than, than some of the... Um, the words that have been kind of bandied around in, in this area, if we find some way of approximating that evolutionary past in our modern life, and, and that's quite different from replicating our modern past, mm. like you know, we don't want to kind of cast, cast it back too far, but if we can approximate some of those core signals that our body wants to get that matches where our genome is at and the environment that it's used to getting, then in theory we might enjoy a better degree of health and well-being so yeah that, that's the theory and many of us have tested it in, in different ways and it's kind of certainly seems to be the case um and certainly versus how we uh kind of let's say forced to live but how we kind of generally end up living as we try and live in this very modern society we have i think we do a little bit better with that approximation versus just kind of accepting everyday life as it is yeah and i really like the way you put that because i feel like people People assume that when you say something about something along the lines of, you know, looking at our ancestors to see what we can do now, they often think, well, well, but, you know, industry isn't going anywhere, houses aren't going anywhere, it's, you know, technology isn't going anywhere, that's basically impossible, so what's the point? Whereas, Yeah, but I, I, don't, think it's, I don't think it's a binary thing, and mm. we need to be very careful, like we live in a very... We live in an age where everything's very polarized and very binary and very black and white. It's like you either do this or you do that. And it's like, um, and I think it's uh, uh, your friend of mine, Cliff Harvey, who's, who says, who has said this before, is like, we've got the ability to kind of look back and view our ancestral past and kind of pick the best bits that mm. line up with, you know, how our bodies want to live. You know, we can be, we can look back at the best part of being a caveman but then we can also look forward and pick up the best part of being a spaceman as well. So, um, you know, like pick, pick the best bits and, and discard the discard the rest. Yeah. Not kind of look back and go, okay, well, you know, things are terrible here. Let's kind of wind the clock back to the good old days of <laughs> of kind of running around and, and kind of hunting and living in caves and whatever else. It's like, well, no, no one's kind of really saying that. So yeah. You know, it's good. And it's good that you actually clarify that because also it's something that like, you know, we are well familiar with. I often get that kind of, that you, you can get that pushbacks from people who are completely unfamiliar with, 
with this whole kind of approach. And what I, what it's interesting, Jamie, because you mention about um, our social environment, and I feel like that's a really important concept that people don't often think about. Like we, you know, we've got. I mean, they do think about it, but not in terms of how it's changed over the years, potentially in a negative, um, in a in a negative way, and. And obviously, social media and the internet and just globalization has really it has brought us all closer together. And there may well be some, you know, positive kind of points of that. And I certainly know that I keep in touch with my family much more because we are all on Facebook. Mm. Um, but the idea that there has been, you know, changes from a negative perspective is something which I, I also think a lot of people are unfamiliar with. So can you just kind of talk about how the social environment has changed? So uh, the, way I, the way I view it is that we live in this day and age of the cult of the individual. Mm. So we, we celebrate individuality, we celebrate uh, individual greatness, um, the the person who can you know, come up with a good idea and run with it, like everything's kind of very, very individualized. Um, when the reality is, is that we are social animals, we're social primates, we work together, we have this kind of collective hive mind, like individuals don't come up with ideas in a vacuum by themselves, they're always are kind of influenced by other people around them. We have this need for... Um, as good as technology is, it, you know, this is a prime example of, you know, instead of us being on a crackly audio call, we can kind of have good, crisp, clear video and I can see your face and you can see my face. And there's a kind of, there's a degree of um, heightened kind of social interaction as a result of that. But it's never a replacement for you and I being in the same room, having that kind of close physical proximity um, to each other. And this is kind of where society has gone is, is that, you know, yes, we can kind of connect with each other very, very well, but probably a good portion of us spend a good portion of our day by ourselves, kind of physically doing our own thing. Uh, and then when we are around people, we tend to kind of reach for these things and we kind of, you know, chuck ourselves down uh, whatever rabbit hole they allow us to, to go down and not have that kind of close interaction of you know physical touch body language so on and so forth so i think as very very as kind of highly social creatures who kind of come together in our small little tribes or, or whatever it happens to be it's not that we've lost that entirely but it is being diluted by modern society and how we kind of operate and it's you know, I think the kind of writings on the wall, and you can talk to any of the psychologists and psychiatrists and, and other people who have kind of looked looked into this, is that we're on the kind of that slippery slope of like how far is too far mm. as we kind of keep going down this um, this pathway of becoming kind of more digitized and more separate from each other. I mean, this this past sort of year and a bit alone, where you know we've all been forced to kind of work from home we like a lot of people don't even have that interaction now of actually going into a workplace a physical workplace and physically being around other humans mm. which which has an effect on us it has an effect on our um, our well-being and our physiology and kind of how we think and feel and, and whatever else so this is yeah so this is kind of individuality and isolation that has kind of starting to kind of creep to the fore a little bit when again we are we are social creatures and, and um, a, a good kind of illustrative example of 
how it can impact us uh, as part of some of the research that, that I've done uh, over the last little while is that something like having, uh, say, a, a city that is, is set up to allow people to go walking or to, uh, you, know, you can live close to your work and you can walk or bike and everyone else is doing that. So that kind of interaction of just passing strangers and being around a group of other people develops a higher level of trust amongst that group. So these people don't know each other, mm. but they're just people who walk past each other on a day-to-day basis. So like, there's a degree of kind of calmness and trust that can develop from that versus, say, a city where it's very car-dominant and car-orientated, um, and you have a group of individuals competing for time and space on a road in their little kind of metal bubbles that actually decreases trust and and increases kind of uh, anxiety and aggression towards other people and so like you just kind of see that the more we kind of put people in bubbles whether they're digital bubbles or metal bubbles in a car or or whatever it happens to be the lower the level of kind of um uh, trust and calmness that you kind of have around a group of people. So, yeah, uh, yeah. There's there's implications for kind of where where we're going, and I think it is one of those things that is not readily addressed or, or not kind of immediately addressed. We all kind of tick the big boxes of oh, you need to sort your diet, you need to sort your nutrition, uh, your physical activity, and you need to sort your sleep. But I think some of the social environment is kind of third fourth fifth down the down the list but it it has some pretty big implications for us yeah so interesting eh? like as you were describing that um with the um with the example you gave about you know walking and having that familiarity of of people and kind of having that sense of trust even with uh strangers but it is that level of familiarity right and I'm thinking just of like going to a gym and I I don't go to a gym anymore but when I used to go to a gym I'd go at the same time I would see the same people I would notice when someone wasn't there and I would think in my head oh I hope they're all right even though I've never spoken to them but yeah yeah. and it's just being in that environment and it's and you're right like over the last year things have really shifted in that social sense and I feel like it's you know it's in New Zealand we're really lucky you know, because of we locked down, we basically got ourselves to this position whereby yeah. COVID is a relatively, it feels like an almost a thing that's happening overseas rather than yeah. happening in our country. And my goodness, we are so fortunate that we were able to go out and do what we did in the weekend, yeah. for example. And overseas, what I, you know, people still... um Obviously, you've still got, we've got face masks, we've got social distancing. And I actually, what I was really concerned about and what I noticed when we had our lockdown, our second lockdown in Auckland, was that people started, there was an air of suspicion around other people. So not only were you not, um, you weren't kind of making eye contact with with someone else, even if you were walking, because all of us were walking outside, but mm. you, you crossed the road to get away from someone, you oh, absolutely. kind of yeah. were suspicious that, that mm. it, it just changed it kind of heightened that almost anxiety around people and it just felt so foreign for us as a species basically mm. I've, I've had it was quite interesting because I've had two kind of I guess experiences in fairly kind of recent times in that I was in Christchurch for the for the big earthquakes between 2010 and 2011 mm. and particularly after the 2011 earthquake where the, the city was basically kind of um, leveled and as people kind of re-emerged and were able to start to move around the, the city 
you would you'd go past people, you'd you'd go out for a walk, and complete strangers who you didn't know, they would look you in the eye and they would say hello mm. as a minimum mm. and ask you if you're okay or are you well or something like like I know you from a bar of soap and here's this kind of stranger like like going out of their way to like almost like change their direction to come past and have that kind of human interaction and yet with the covid as a uh, uh, covid pandemic uh, particularly of the the lockdown period as you say there was that almost that opposite effect where people would shift out of your way and give you more space cross the road and no one would look you in the eye mm. and barring i think like my observation was that um older older individuals so people in their probably 60s plus they would still kind of say hello but anyone kind of under that age would just treat you with absolute suspicion and, and again wouldn't even kind of interact with you and look you in the eye you kind of you kind of geez, i feel like a leper I, like I, I feel you know if i've got a big sign on me it says that i i have covid or something along those lines so yeah it's it's very um it's kind of very jarring Mm. like living in this day and age i know i absolutely um felt it too so i'm really relieved that we're in the position we're in now like compared to where we could be yeah so let's just shift gears a little bit because you you know we've something that i know that you've spent a number of years kind of researching and subsequently you've you know got a lot on your blog about this whole idea of biological rhythmicity you know, like kind of living in line with our, not only our biology, as you were explaining with that mismatch between the genes and the environment, but um, with the circadian rhythm and, and our own mm. biological rhythm. Can you, um, and you've written about our daytime and nighttime physiology as well, and, you know, what these are and, and how these differ. Jamie, are you able to unpack that in a way which I can't? and kind of describe for the listeners, you know, that whole area of this biological rhythmicity and why it's important. How long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> I will do my best. Okay, so let's let's back up a little bit. So there's a bit, bit of a story behind this. So uh, we, we kind of mentioned at the start with the whole kind of paleocene, the, the Rob Wolfs and Mark Sissons, and that amongst that kind of group of people were... Uh, two who you know, may may or may not be familiar to some of your listeners, and that was uh, Dallas and Melissa Hartwick, who had um, the what's it called at the time it was the whole nine uh, blog, a whole nine program, and that kind of the nine referred to kind of different lifestyle factors, and it was kind of it wasn't labelled paleo as such, but it was in the, very much in the same space. Uh, people may be more familiar with the whole thirty diet, mm. uh, which is um, was was come about through Dallas and Melissa and you know, unfortunately their, their marriage kind of broke up and it's now kind of Melissa, Melissa's thing. Uh, so this was back in 2011. And Dallas Hartwig had had been doing kind of some noodling on you know, a certain idea as we all did at the time. And he started looking at the idea of seasonality. And I was you know good friends with Dallas and he kind of batted a few ideas around. He goes, well, what, what do you think of this idea of viewing a lot of the health advice that we're you know, trying to kind of make sense of it and give to people. How do you feel about it through a seasonal lens where instead of just kind of giving this one piece of advice that stays fixed throughout the year, it actually kind of oscillates because there's, there's so much that kind of is rhythmic and, and oscillates in kind of our physiology and our, our health anyway. And it's like, oh, that's a bloody good idea. 
And so we, we spent a, a couple of years, uh, again, kind of, this is around kind of 2012, um, throwing some stuff around and coming up with a, uh, like a seasonal model of, of health, which is very kind of, uh, very much based on most of Dallas's work. Uh, I did a little bit of extra research at the time. We presented at a, one of the conferences in Atlanta, I think, the seasonal model of health. And then it was very well received. And we kind of looked at things like, uh, is there such a thing as a summer diet versus a winter diet? Is there summer sleep versus winter sleep and, and so on? Uh, and then the idea kind of just faded away and, and was buried amongst, you know, both of us kind of going off and, and doing our own thing. But always in the back of my mind, at least, was this kind of thing saying to Dallas, it's like, we well, need to write a book on this. You need to write a book on it. Uh, and they've got to sort of jump forward to 20, I think 16, 17 or something along those lines. It was like, Dallas, you need to write this book, book on it. And he's like, okay, but how about you do the research for it? Uh, and see if we can kind of update it. So I ended up from about 2017, I think, ended up doing um, a lot of the research to what became the book, which is now called The Four Seasons Solution. Um, and I, I, I do have to say that The Four Seasons Solution is a very much a publisher's title. Um, and as you probably well appreciate, Mickey, that like once publishers get hold of your manuscript and your book, it's it's game on as to what they want to change and how it gets positioned and, and everything else. So uh, it did kind of get kind of positioned as very much this uh, was it a, a groundbreaking new solution and new way of living. It's like, well, it's not really. It's just an idea. <laughs> but, you know, you, you guys do do you with it. So, I mean, the, the fundamental premise to this idea around kind of seasonality and rhythmicity or cyclicity is that everything in life has a has a natural oscillation there are very very few things in the natural world that stay fixed across say a, a 12 month span like a one one full year uh, it tends to kind of oscillate up and down and we're like we're surrounded by this so at, at kind of the most fundamental level we have this uh rhythmic day and night so sun goes up, sun goes down, but that doesn't happen at the same time every single day right throughout the year. So, you know, particularly like where we are at a very um, temperate latitudes, is that the light is constantly, constantly shifting. And sadly, we're kind of at the point where it's starting to get a little bit darker in the morning and starting to get um, the sun's going down a little bit earlier in the, the evening. And soon enough, it will be into the depths of winter and we'll be on a um, compressed daytime and an expanded nighttime but we have other oscillations out there so uh the tides come and go um we have lunar cycles mm -hmm. so the there's a there's a lunar phase um probably more recently uh everyone's been talking about female reproductive or menstrual cycles mm -hmm. that's kind of become popular and come to the fore so there's a kind of a, a natural physiological rhythm we have differences in seasons and even even right out to kind of life cycles you can talk about being a kind of geologically active island, it's very difficult to not talk about earthquakes being on geological cycles. The Alpine Fault is on something like a 375-year cycle or whatever. So everything kind of oscillates in a cycle. It doesn't just kind of stay in this, this flat line. Whereas Western society, modern Western society, modern Western culture, is very linear in the way that uh, we perceive things. So we kind of we're almost sort of forced in a way to live a very is to take out all of those oscillations and live in a very kind of flat line average life mm. so you know a, a simple example is it's like 
even though the daylight shifts around and even though that kind of has an impact on our physiology and our energy levels and whatever else, we generally don't get the luxury of starting work a little bit later in winter and starting earlier in summer or um, you know, ch- changing other parts of our life. It's like we start, we get up at the same time, no matter what time of the year it is, by and large, we start work at the same time, we finish work at the same time, we eat at the same time, so everything's kind of flatlined. Mm. And in a way, we've kind of built this life where we're, we almost kind of perceive the years of our life as like uh, almost like train tracks that are kind of stacked end on end on top of each other. So you start here and your life goes in a very linear way, you know, board, tickle the milestones, stop at all the train stations, and then the tracks end when you die. Nice straight line, mm. that's, that's life. But the reality both in the natural world, but also in many kind of non-Western cultures, is that life actually kind of spirals in a cycle. It's not this kind of, this line. So, um, you know, things kind of come around again, and there's not that kind of uh, fear of missing out or scarcity mentality. For some reason, I always, like, one of the, the, the illustrative things I have in my mind is Briscoe's, and you'll have to kind of bear with me on this. So no, like, you know, the classic... Um, uh, home home store we have here, Briscoes, where they have a sale and they go like, "This is this is the biggest Briscoe sale." It's just like, and it's going to end on this date. And if you don't partake in it, you're you're kind of missing out. And so we kind of go, "Here's this thing that is, has a start date and an end date, and if you miss out, it's going to pass you by, and you you'll never get that sale ever again." But we all know that the Briscoe sale just will come around again in I don't know two weeks, three weeks time. Mm. But that doesn't create that kind of scarcity mentality of like, oh, we need to act now. And if we don't get this thing done now, then it'll it'll bypass us. Um, nothing in the natural world kind of operates like that. We we kind of we go around in this kind of natural cycle, ebbing and flowing with the the seasons, whether we like it or not, because of the hard wiring between our physiology and the environment. Yeah. Okay. And so, if I'm thinking about then daytime and nighttime physiology, how does that kind of play into how what you just described, Jamie? So we've kind of gone from the big picture, but if we think about the individual, what are the differences there, and and what impact does kind of not not honouring, if you like, each of those things? What impact would that have on our overall health and well-being? Yep. So the, one of the most fascinating areas for for me to kind of look at in the book now, like I mean, I. You know, I, I've come from the nutrition side of it, so I've been like very biased towards food and nutrition for for a number of years. And uh, Dallas Hartwood Hartwood kind of came from a similar background uh, initially. So we all kind of looked at stuff through the lens of diet kind of being the most important important thing. It became very apparent as we kind of dived into the research that our our light exposure is one of the most, if not the most, powerful things which affects our physiology on a day-to-day basis mm. and obviously the biggest most powerful source of that light every day is, is the sunlight and that our exposure to that kind of bright natural light and sometimes unnatural light will trigger a cascade of physiological changes turning things on and off flicking on neurotransmitters suppressing others so on and so forth and once you kind of understand that that we we have that hard wiring to the light and much of our downstream physiology shifts with that exposure or lack of exposure to it, then when you kind of realize it's like, well, the sun doesn't come up at the same time every day. It shifts around all over the show. 
So in summer, when the sun is up and brighter, before probably most of us are even out of bed in the morning, and then in winter, when we're up before the sunlight is, we can't escape the physiological consequences of that. It's most easily illustrated when you kind of think about it at at the extreme. So like if you went to, if we kind of took you up and lived in a um, country that's high in the Arctic Circle somewhere, or down in Antarctica, where you're either exposed to effectively like 24-hour daylight versus 24-hour darkness at either of the polar extremes of extreme summer versus extreme winter, you know that that has an effect on you. And, and, you know, anyone who's kind of vaguely kind of read anything in this area will understand that there is a degree of what we call mania, which goes with 24-hour exposure to constant daylight, like it's pretty hard like you, you kind of initially you'll feel that you've got a, a lot of energy but that energy just kind of grinds you down and you end up kind of absolutely longing for darkness and, and sleep and you know, there's, there's obviously kind of some um, pathologies that go with that that mania as well versus uh, being in 24-hour darkness where you just want to sleep all the time. There's a degree of kind of like just sluggishness and depression and, and lack of energy. So like in that, and that, that's like the extreme. So in our everyday life here in New Zealand, where we don't necessarily have those extremes, we still have like some really big light shifts. So certainly versus what you'll, you'll get at the equatorial levels, that has an impact on how we feel, how we function, what our energy levels are, are like, what our mood states are. Uh, I think there'd be probably many of your listeners would be familiar with that kind of feeling of um, low moods, winter blues that occurs mid-July, August, maybe a little bit sooner for, for some people that w- we kind of term the seasonal affective disorder, mm. which is largely an issue with the daylight hours. Yeah. So it has this, it has this massive effect. So once you kind of, uh, again, kind of understand what the link is between the 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 daylight and our physiology and then kind of understand that daylight is just not constant it shifts around all over the show thus our physiology and the downstream consequences of that will also shift around yeah um, during the during the day as well and 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 that's even before we sort of start to talk about some of the disruptive aspects to that light exposure that goes with with modern living uh, which we can dive into if you like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's where I was going to head, Jamie, because, you know, I think I feel like you were quite instrumental in my understanding of that um, daylight or day-night physiology and the whole concept of, you know, yes, like right now, for example, I'm in a it's daylight, I'm in a room with windows, but there is also mm. um, artificial light above me, LED lights, yet mm. some people would call that inside light being almost like junk light, much the way that we talk about food being junk food. Um, can you describe for us just, you know, what the the impact is of our exposure to junk light, be it day or night, and just what impact that has? So, so in the book, I, I termed it, uh, and I think one of the chapters, I can't even remember whether the chapter name got ty- uh, got changed, but um, we termed it uh, dark days, bright nights. And we we end up with this what uh, what I thought of as a as a light inversion. So even in our brightest of office spaces, be it at home or in the office, that light, no matter what the source is, whether it's LEDs, 
and certainly old incandescence, fluorescence, whatever the, the light source is, it just cannot compete with the intensity of light that you'd get outside, even on the grayest of days. Now, you know, it's, uh, it's raining here in Christchurch. It's kind of overcast. And if I stuck my light meter out outdoors, it would still be tens of thousands of lux. So lux being kind of a measure of the light intensity that's out there. If I open up the light meter here, maybe in this office, two, three, four hundred lux. Mm. And as a as I started to kind of understand this, I'm like, oh, what I'll do is I'll for a few months I'll actually do a bit of an experiment where I'll map out kind of my world as it is that, you know, all the places that I go to at different times of the year, I bought a photographer's uh, light meter. Um, subsequently you can all, all phones because I've got cameras on them have got light meters so you can download an app that allows you to do this as well so I went around a, a stack of different places that um, I just happened to kind of hang out in or you know wherever you know, I went to and I started taking uh, light meter um, readings and what became crystal clear was that it just didn't matter how bright it was indoors it was always an order of magnitude brighter outdoors, mm. like on the greyest of darkest, most miserable winter days in Christchurch, it could be, I think maybe one of the lowest readings. So something like 3,000 lux mm. from mid-morning on, onwards. There's no indoor lighting that gets even remotely close to that, that level. And if, if you did have indoor lighting because of the confinement of the space, anything that does get close to that level would just be intolerable um, because it's too much light in such a confined space and it ends up being kind of too bright, I think more for our eyes than a kind of a, a deeper physiology. So so it became very, very apparent that we spend a lot of our daytime because we're largely indoor workers now, we spend a lot of our daytime in relative darkness. And it, like the key is there relative. Mm. So like again, I'm in a I'm in a bright office, but relative to if I was outdoors doing gardening or whatever it happened to be, mm. it's quite dark in here. And it's certainly not at the level that my physiology would expect or rather that I would have or what my kind of genome has been exposed to for the for the long period of time. Yeah. The the flip side of that is that at night, however, once the sun goes down, the light intensity outdoors is extremely low. Like maybe on a very, very super bright full moon night, you might get up to I think maybe like 10 lux. And even then, I think I'm probably overstating the, the number. So the number's really, really low. In your house, however, at night, if you've got the, you know, a modern house with LED lighting, uh, and then you've got your big screen TV, and then you've got your phone and your computer, and like just this massive cluster of light indoors, you could be up around 200, 300 lux at night when your physiology now wants to be in its night mode effectively and is expecting this really low level of, low level of light. So you have this inversion where during the day, when our body's trying to be awake and it's trying to have our daytime physiology active and that daytime physiology is very much predicated on these very, very um, high-intensity light exposures, uh, boosting our cortisol levels, boosting our serotonin le levels, we're just not getting the signal that is as strong as it should be 
And then at nighttime, we flip that over where now we should be into our nighttime physiology. Melatonin level should be coming to the fore. Cortisol level should be on the decline. And now we're just blasting this kind of junk light into our eyes at an intensity that we just shouldn't, shouldn't be getting. And again, there's, there ends up being consequences mm. to that. Some of it's interesting on the, the light readings. Like I took... It was, abs- it was absolutely shocking that s- some of the workplaces that I took readings in were crazy dark. Like the darkest I took was, in you being an ex-Dunedin person will know this place well, Mickey, the darkest I took was Modax Cafe in Dunedin. And that was at 60 lux mm. in the middle of the day. Now, for you or I to go in and grab a coffee for 15 minutes before we head back out the door... Eh, how big a deal is it? Maybe not. But you've got to bear in mind that there are human beings who are stuck in that place all day. Yeah. Like six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours a day. Yeah. Sometimes longer in 60 lux. It's basically like they're in a cave the whole day. Yeah. Like that does not pass without a consequence to their physical and their mental and emotional health. Yeah. Do you know, it's interesting, Jamie, because I, you know, when you were telling us at our Ancestral Health Society meeting about your findings with Lux as you were doing the research for the book, I then started thinking about it when I was at an airport. And also, of course, Baz, um, he works in a hospital. And, you know, these are places where people can go in at, say, 6.30 in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning before the sun comes up and then not leave until, say, 5, 5.30. And in winter, the sun is, has gone down. And, mm-hmm. and it is so dark in those places, particularly right if you're in, say, the international terminal and you've got people who just work in those duty-free stores. Mm-hmm. Like, they must be much like that Modex cafe, like, just never really get the signal that is required for that optimal functioning of all the neurotransmitters and our um, hormones and stuff that you were describing. And there'd be vast quantities of people in that position in the modern working environment. Absolutely. One of the places that I was doing some work for, and I I won't name names because I think last time I named names, I got a phone call from an HR office about (laughs) that. um, So I I took some light readings in in this particular uh, store, and it was a store that was... um, it was a, an old, older mall, suburban mall in Christchurch. It was a store that was deep inside the mall, so it had no natural light whatsoever, uh, and it was under old kind of fluorescent tubes. The light readings in that were terrible. Like they were, I don't know, 150 lux or something along the, those lines. And without exception, or maybe one exception, everyone in there, and this was kind of the depths of winter, uh, everyone was on... Uh, antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication. Yeah. Now, you know, I'm not sort of saying that it's a hundred percent a cause of that, but that's a it's either a big exacerbating or an amplifying factor mm. to other things that were were going on. Mm. And like I I knew a couple of people who subsequently left that place and went to another place that was a much more light environment, and they said like almost immediately they felt so much better. Yeah. So, like, I mean, when you, you you basically are sticking human beings in dark spaces for, you know, I say, ten, twelve hours a day, and like they don't look dark. That's the that's the deception of it. Like, we can go into a hospital and it feels bright. We can go into a mall and it feels bright, but it is, as you say, it's almost kind of junk light. Like, it is, it's not in the right wavelength. It's not at the right intensity. It's you know, we're not exposed to it for for long enough, and it really messes us up I was gonna I was gonna say an adult word there but 
it messes us up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's um see you you mentioned melatonin before and people will be well familiar with that, yet they will think of it as our sleep hormone. Yeah. I really liked how you described it more as a, the darkness, the hormone of darkness mm. essentially. So we've mentioned, you know, that there are health implications of not getting light at the right intensity. Jamie, what are those health implications and what, you know, what would you generally expect to see because of it? Or what do we know? So melatonin is, um, it's interesting. And as as you say, most people kind of assume that it is our uh, sleep hormone. And like, yes, it's involved in some of those sleep processes, but it is better to kind of think of it as the the hormone of our dark physiology. Mm. And it's involved in any number of um, physiological processes through like, uh, it's a it's a very powerful immunomodulatory hormone. People may be familiar with say, something like vitamin D being a, a steroid hormone that has very um, powerful effects on modulating our, our immune system. Well, like melatonin is kind of right up there. With that, and a good, you know, a good portion of our immune system comes up to full power of, overnight while we're sleeping. That's when we do a lot of our kind of healing and repair, and and um, melatonin sort of very deeply involved with that. It's involved with things like bone health and reproductive health, and uh, you know, there's links with melatonin being like very preventative of several cancers, including breast cancer and, and so on and so forth. So, so there's a lot of downstream implications from not getting that dark physiology, not getting that really good dark exposure. Mm. Uh, again, in our modern society, I think what we've done is, is brought sleep into the consciousness of people more than what we had, say, 10 years ago. People are like, they're now kind of talking about sleep and there's a deep interest in it, and partly just because people are, are probably aren't getting enough of it. I think we need to extend that a little bit past just the like, okay, sleep's really important, so I need to be asleep here and I'll be awake here and that's the most important bit of my night to go actually the most important bit of your night is the night it's the darkness and sleep is a subset of that yeah so even if you i don't know you slept the magic eight hours nine hours that kind of people think we should do but your light exposures around that your melatonin pulses are are skewed then probably still not getting the full benefit yeah interesting i think as well that could explain why some why people might um, have issues with sleep, go to the doctor, get prescribed melatonin, yet it actually doesn't really move the needle for them with regards to no. sleep. And no. what you've just described, that really makes sense to me as to why that might be now. Yeah. So, I mean, and the, the phenomenon around that is, is limbs, light-induced melatonin suppression. Mm. So, again, like the melatonin is tied to the light. Mm. So, you know, if you're... Yeah, as, as we spoke about, if you've got this kind of lightened version, you're at home at night, you've got you know, big screen TVs going, you've got your phone and laptops and tablets and LED lights, like you've got the whole lot going on. And again, like the relative, the absolute intensity of that light environment in your home might only be 100 lux or it could be 150, 200 lux. So it, like it's relatively low intensity, but relative to the 1 to 10 lux that's outdoors, it's actually very high intensity. Mm. So if you've got that light environment going on, simply swallowing melatonin 15, 30 minutes before you want to go to bed, probably it's not going to do much. No. I mean, not notwithstanding whether or not it gets to your brain and, and yeah. all the other stuff that goes with that. But Yeah. 
See, really interesting because I know I often think about sunglasses and over recent times I've actually moved away from wearing them so much because of my understanding about that day and light kind of physiology. But I see people, you know, they have sunglasses on whenever they're outside. and, and, and Seven o'clock in the morning yeah, walking to work. Yeah, yeah. totally. And um, and the other thing is I, I understand now that a lot of prescription glasses have been advertised as being blue light blockers. And so people who use prescription glasses just for, you know, short long-sightedness throughout the day, they're outside in these glasses, which are actually potentially blocking some of that um, important um, spectrum of light. I think it's one of those kind of almost unintended consequences in that, like I know a lot of the you know, computer glasses, gamers glasses and, and so on, and I've got a set here of blue light blocking computer glasses. They they can, re- if you're wearing them during the day, particularly if you're working on a computer for a long period of time, they can reduce eye strain. I don't know the mechanics of that, it's outside of my, my wheelhouse. But if you were then to keep them on, if they are part of your prescription glasses that you then have to wear in the in the outdoors, yeah, then that's going to have an unintended consequence there. And and you're right, yeah, people wearing sunglasses, and I and I became much more conscious of of this as well, of in the early like particularly from as early as possible in the morning, not wearing dark glasses, and and I always kind of saw it as a joke you'd kind of walk through town and you'd see someone walking to work at half past seven, you know, let's say it's barely light at that time um, for all but the, the peak of summer here in Christchurch, walking to walking to work, dark glasses on, and maybe like a cup of coffee or worse still, probably a can of Monster energy drink or something. And I'm like, dude, just take the glasses off and that will give you more of an energy boost than, than um, what the drink will. So, but I, I think kind of pragmatically, we need to be a little bit careful because I know it becomes like the sunscreen thing where you sort of start saying, well, maybe you shouldn't be wearing sunscreen because your vitamin D levels and people go, oh, but you know, skin cancer and burning and, and they'll do the same with eye protection as, as well. It's like, yeah, there's, you know, we live in a high UV environment. So, um, so, you know, there's, there's is- potential issues with getting too much light in the eyes or too much ultraviolet light in the eyes and the sunglasses can help with that. But it's a case of timing. So if it's like prior to solar noon, so prior to 11 o'clock in the morning on a summer's day, get the eyes out in the bright light, get your skin out in the bright light where the damage is going to be relatively minimal. Like the upside is, is better than the downside. Then maybe over those, you know, that solar noon period where the sun is at its absolute highest, it's blazing hot, and you know you're going to have a, you know, maybe a longer term exposure because you're out for a run or a ride or something like that. And then sure, like wear some glasses to protect against the worst of it then. And particularly probably in the, the height of the day, there's still probably enough light coming through the sunglasses to still have some of these these effects so it's again it's just being kind of pragmatic and and getting the the timing right okay um yeah and then jamie you've kind of indicated some of the things we can do to get that bright light exposure what are some other practical tips that people can um kind of put into place in their lives in their homes potentially maybe even in their offices i'm not sure that might help optimize light kind of throughout the day as well and and optimize it in a way that helps our nighttime physiology yeah, uh, I mean, simply we've we've got this built environment now. Our homes are built in such a way as um, that they we we try and kind of shield 
um, many of our homes from some some of the brightest light, and particularly our workplaces are uh, heavily shielded from light. Although, like more modern environments are trying to have like big glass windows, but the light environment can still be um, is is obviously still kind of relatively dark compared to the the outdoors. Um, so the way around it is that you you can't kind of you're not going to change the built environment. You can't change whether you know the light bulbs are shifted. You can't kind of put brighter light bulbs in because it's still going to be relatively dark. So the the way to go get around it is like you actually have to take your eyes outdoors. And you know, so it's in the morning if it's light when you wake up is try and you know get your eyes outdoors. And you know, in our home here, we'll often try and. Um, in the morning just go and stand on the balcony for two three four minutes and just kind of get that first little bit of light in the the eyes just kind of you know wake up look off to the distance that helps with, with eyesight anyway if you're in an office you're almost going to have to take you have to take breaks outdoors and again like i i know like having spoken to this to people in the past is they're like oh but it's cold outside or this that next thing they come out with a million idea a uh, million excuses as to why they can't go outside and yet ironically many of the things that they can kind of complain about say i don't want to go outdoors and get some bright light in my eyes because it's cold part of the reason why you feel the cold is because you're sitting in the dark like you one of the things that happens with your melatonin levels increasing this is what happens overnight is that as melatonin levels build up your body temperature declines so if you're sitting in the darkness all day you're going to feel naturally colder than what you would if you actually just went out and got the bright light in the eyes. So, so like really the my big tip is that in the early part of the the day is that you've got to you've got to get your eyes outdoors. Mm. It's as as simple as that. And it's um, and creating those. It, uh, you you and I have both kind of done a, a little bit of kind of workplace uh, health work. Is creating kind of those cultures in workplaces where it's like it's okay to go outdoors and or to go for a like a five to ten minute light break like we were allowed to go for coffee breaks it's like we'll go and grab your coffee and go and get your eyes outdoors somewhere and there's a certain degree of irony with this that um, you may have heard of mickey is that uh a, a kind of workplaces where historically um you know there's been a, a high number of smokers but smokers have had to go outdoors there's some interesting health statistics around um the kind of the the longer term health of people who smoke and they don't quite they don't quite have the health impacts that you might think that they would because they are smokers that it's not that they get off scot-free but it's not quite as bad as what you perhaps thought it was going to be and one theory that got has been thrown around is that smokers will they'll do a number of things they will go outdoors, so they'll be standing outside, no matter what the weather, because it's like they desperately want to have the cigarettes, so it could be like you know, 10 feet of snow on the ground, and they're like, oh, I still need to go for a cigarette. Um, so they go outdoors no matter what, and then they also generally, like, they'll cluster together, there'll be a group of smokers, and so they'll kind of have this, there's almost like a social bonding effect that, that goes with it as well. But there's this theory that some of the bright light exposure and the impact that that then has on melatonin pulse for them later on can i need to be careful here how how i frame this can kind of offset some of the potential risk around smoking but i didn't say that 
like exposure is <laughs> a get out of jail free card. That's interesting yeah. because I actually I was going to ask you, Jamie, and I know that all we can do is speculate, right? But let's yeah. say that our light environment was optimized at a population level. Do you think then that diet would be as important? Could we get away with eating the Doritos and the Mac Maccas? What do you reckon? Uh, it's like you're talking about you're talking about this thing. It's a it's a highly integrated system, and I think the moment you kind of um, the moment any of us kind of take our thing that you know we've we've got to kind of bug up our butt about and go, oh, this like light is going to be the thing, or diet is a thing, or physical activity is the thing, and kind of ignore all the other things in the integrated system, you're really opening yourself up for you know to being proved be proved a bit of a Charlie with it. So. Um, I I think you know light is very very important absolutely important like we are creatures of the daylight and we need absolute darkness and and all of those important but whether or not w- once the light environment is sorted out whether that then buys you some breathing space in other areas maybe um I like probably less on the diet more on the physical act- activity side of things a- again a lot of the physical activity prescription that seems to be most beneficial is physical activity that's outdoor physical activity. And so we sort of say, like, you know, go for a, go for a walk or um, go for a bike ride. And doing that in an outdoor environment seems to have an effect over and above just doing it on a treadmill in a sweaty gym somewhere or whatever it happens to be so maybe that extra additional benefit that goes with doing those things in an outdoor environment is the light modulation signal that goes with it same same with things around you know we talk about the benefits of forest bathing so um, uh, green space exposure or blue space exposure when we talk about like being exposed to large bodies of water the you know the beach or a lake or something along those lines like is it that or is it just the light? And, like, and I'm sure it's both. Yeah, but yeah. Like it's really hard to tease the light signal away from some of those other prescriptions because it is so powerful, but it's also something that people don't really understand or consider that readily. Yeah, interesting. I was speaking to Dr. James O'Keefe last week, who's a cardiologist in the States, mm, yep. um, and he was talking about longevity from an athletic perspective. And when they did a, a big epidemiological study um, with colleagues in, I believe it was Sweden or Denmark, can't remember which, and the results came out, and the and the results were that the people who were most protected against um, heart disease um, were people who played things like tennis or badminton, um, which mm. brings with it not only the potential to be outdoors, but also that social um, bonding part of it as well, much as you were describing with the smokers mm. going outdoors with their mates having a bit of a fag. Smoko. Yeah. 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 So yeah. So again, in that in that scenario, you've got a group of people who, yes, they're taking in this known carcinogenic substance, but at the same time, they're getting bright light exposure and all of the downstream consequences of, of that. And the, but they're also getting the social bonding and all of the downstream hormonal and neurotransmitter responses of that. So you know, again, maybe that's not well. We know it's not enough to entirely offset this carcinogenic like substance that you're taking in but like it's a it's a modulating factor in there for sure yeah so jamie finally i don't know what your experience is but when i'm talking to people about their diet because that is what they've um, engaged my services for they for whatever reason they're very um you know they're very quick to take on board a lot of the obviously the food related um information but then when i start to talk to them about 
the other factors like stress, like sleep, like light, um, like activity, but you know, more so those other three things, they're so much more resistant to making change. Hmm. What is your experience? Is that what you find as well? And why do you reckon that is? It's absolutely what I, what I find. And it's like, it's one of my deepest sources of frustration. If, so the, the way I kind of view this is that people basically operate on what we call structure systems and schedules. Now, a, a schedule in your life is just something that, you know, you, you make time for, like you schedule your breakfast in, you schedule your, your lunch in. Um, outside of that schedule, we have the structures and systems. So structures are like what I um, refer to as our, like they're all the environmental factors. So that can be things like the built environment factor, uh, your social environment, so on and so forth. So if like if I was to say to you, Mickey, I really want you to go for a walk every lunchtime and you, you lived in an environment where it's car dominated and there are no footpaths and you never feel safe doing that and there's a constant threat that you're going to get run over by traffic, you're not going to do that because the, the structure of that environment is against you. It doesn't matter how much I reinforce you. It's like, just schedule it in, just schedule it in. 12.30 every day, go and do it. It's like, I can schedule it in, but structurally I can't do it because the environment doesn't, doesn't allow it. Uh, and then the, the, the systems are like our processes and practices and habits and, and so on that we allow some of these things to, to happen with. So what I see with people around the diet is that uh, diet advice is that they find it very relatively uh, relative compared to some of the other um, health well-being factors is they find it very easy to go, okay, I can do some, make some dietary changes because they're already eating. They're already like have a breakfast, lunch, and dinner. maybe not, as you and I both know, maybe they're not eating. But, you know, they can kind of wrap their head around the fact that they need to eat and they have a, they have a schedule for that and their workplace environment may allow them to kind of have meal breaks, which should definitely allow them to have meal breaks. They probably have a house with a kitchen in it, so there's an environment there that allows for food. So, so we, we have an environment that is conducive to wedging in some nutrition advice. And like you and I know that even then it's not plain sailing, like it's, it's kind of difficult to make some of those changes and maybe the biggest environmental barrier that we come come up against in terms of the nutrition advice is actually more the social environment so it's not like if you take a human being in isolation and go here's what i think you need to eat to be healthier they can wrap their head around it but then the moment you put that person back into their family life or their this their uh, friend and family social circle things can get a little bit more difficult either way that structure systems and schedules is a little bit easier for the nutrition side of things versus say, you know, say something like I, I want you to get more light exposure. And so I want you to be, you know, up and I want you to go out early in the morning to get some bright light exposure. I want you to turn your TV off. Like now suddenly like that's from an environmental standpoint and from a habits and practices standpoint, they become a lot more a lot more difficult. So if I was, you know, if I say to anyone, it's like you really shouldn't have your television, phone, and laptop going at night because of what it does to your light environment. Maybe turn those things off. People are like, "What am I going to do at night? Like, am I going to sit here and you know go to bed at seven o'clock?" No. Like, so the 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 environmental shift becomes a little bit too big, and it, yeah, you, you kind of have to kind of break it down into kind of smaller, more pragmatic chunks to get some of those other sleep light physical activity things across the line just because the again the, the environment that we've built for ourselves 
is not conducive to allowing big big shifts in that yeah or like big big shifts in a relatively short space of time so so that that's the the difficulty i always have is to get people to go you are the product of your environment be it a, a physical environment or a social environment or or otherwise you are not a product of your own individual failings lack of willpower blah 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 so if you want to make changes in these areas, lasting changes in these areas, that just doesn't feel like a constant wrestling match and constantly coming up against this barrier and next barrier. You have to start looking at changing your environment. And that can be pretty challenging for people. And I've, I've worked with clients recently who have come to the realization that um, a lot of their habits and practices are heavily influenced by their social environment and they're like huh my friends are bad for my health hmm do i need to get new friends hmm can't do that hmm okay i'm just going to accept the fact that i'm going to be unhealthy and be miserable as a result of it so yeah so like it's 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 tough for, for some people when they kind of start to kind of connect the dots on it. Yeah, sure. Um, Jamie, taking up enough of your time as, and... Um, oh, I've got nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you taking clients? And if so, where can people find you? I am taking clients. Uh, my uh, brand company thing is uh, P3 Athletica. So P3, the numeral, athletica.co.nz. Uh, awesome. Uh, so if people just kind of... Search that, use a Google thingy, and you'll find me pretty quickly. Fab, and I'll, po- I'll pop it in the um, yeah. show notes as well, alongside yeah. um, links to the book that you researched for Dallas Hartwig. Yeah. Um, and any other kind of, um, I'm going to do a bit of a search around your blog posts as well, because I feel like the more that people kind of buy into this stuff, you know, read about it, probably the more they will buy into it as you know like the more you know and understand the more you can then start to I don't know put in some groundwork equally working with someone like you um, probably makes it a whole lot easier for them to chunk it down into little bite-sized bits that are actually applicable Mm. that that uh, just like final comment for me would be that my single biggest piece of advice would be to work with shameless plug here work with people like um either myself or you because I think what people are ex- what people are exposed to is a massive amount of information yeah. and sometimes that information is very conflicting and you know they're not very good at kind of passing that information in a in an area particularly when they've got so much else going on in their life and so it can end up very very confusing whereas your job and my job is to actually sort through that information and decide what is applicable what is going to be a pragmatic thing for them to to focus on in their world and to kind of help them with those stepping stones to make some of those early changes. And, and in that regard, our, our knowledge and our expertise and our um, experience of having seen so many, worked with so many people who are suffering the same sort of thing is that we kind of, we know which bits are going to stick in which scenario and what bit to focus on first and what bit to, to leave. Whereas I think if people are just, you know, it's kind of great to build up a, a level of information from reading blogs and so on and so forth. But just remember that information is not knowledge and information is not wisdom. Maybe you and I started to get to the age where we could maybe say we've got a little bit of wisdom in there, but we've certainly got some, some knowledge to help people out. Awesome, Jamie. Thank you. Thanks, Mickey. 
Hey team, hope you enjoyed that conversation I had with Jamie and he is a guru in that athlete front. So if you need someone to support you in your athletic goals, absolutely, Jamie could be awesome for you. You can find him over at p3athletica.co.nz and also on the same handle, p3athletica on Instagram, where he posts a whole bunch of really valuable and useful information that shows you how to eat in the real world for real athletes looking for real results. So um, go check it out. And all of the information we talked about, Jamie researched for a book called The Four Season Solution. And the author of that is Dallas Hartwig of four of the whole 30 fame so you can jump on amazon i'll put a link to the book in the show notes as well and also to jamie's contact information and next week on wikipedia i talked to dr mark kukazella a low carb physician ultra runner passionate about changing the health of thousands of people until then you can find me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, and on my website, MickeyWillardin.com. And that's one of the best ways you can support the podcast by signing up to a number of my meal plans, be it fat loss, longevity plan, an athlete plan, or you just want some real food solutions so you don't have to think about it. Jump on my online coaching program where you get 28 day meal plans, shopping lists, a weekly email in and around topics that I'm currently researching and access to me 24 seven to pick my brain about your personalized nutrition plan. That's over on mickeywillardin.com. And if you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave a five star review. Cool team. Alrighty then, until next week, see you later.